Don't you hate it when somebody says to you, hey, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, right? How many hate that? (laughs) So there was a guy, he got in some trouble and his attorney told him, he said, listen, I got good news and I got bad news. He said, first, I'm going to give you the bad news. The bad news is this, that the blood test came back and your DNA is an exact match that was found at the crime scene. He said, oh no, well, well, what's the good news? Your cholesterol's down to 140. (laughs) Thank you. There was a guy that wasn't feeling very well and he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, I have some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? He says, well, I guess I'll, I'll take the good news first. And the doctor replies to him. He says, you're going to get a disease named after you. That's bad news, right? Wife told her husband, she said, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want to hear first? And the husband said, well, let's hear the good news. And the wife says, the good news is that your car's airbag worked perfectly. And then another guy went to to the doctor and he said, doctor says, I have good news and bad news. And the patient says, well, what's the good news? And the doctor says, you have 24 hours to live. He says, geez, well, what's the bad news? He says, I should have told you yesterday. (laughs) You see that one coming? Um, Today, we're starting a new series in the book of Romans, and I've been studying for months for this, as well as just getting ahead. And the book of Romans is such a rich, rich book. All the Bible is, is, is rich, but Romans is such a incredible understanding of the gospel. That's really what the book of Romans is. The apostle Paul um, wrote this book and, and Jesus just had downloaded truth to the apostle Paul. And he writes this book. I was joking with Craig Burns on the way in that um, this is the deep end of the pool to some degree when you read the book of Romans. It's especially the first uh, 11 chapters. I thought about passing out arm floaties so that we don't drown in the deep end of the pool this morning. thought that was going to go over better, but anyway. Um, thank you, thank you. The title of the series is not ashamed, as you can see. It's not ashamed. Paul says this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. We're not ashamed of the gospel. So yes, Paul wrote this, this letter. Paul in Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Who is the apostle Paul? Well, we learn about him first in the book of Acts, that he was, he was the Jew of Jews. He followed the law of Moses. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. But after the People started following Jesus after the day of Pentecost and the church began to blow up. Paul thought it was his duty to try to snuff out this new thing called Christianity, this this person they were worshiping as the Messiah. 
because a lot of the Jews just couldn't see Jesus as the Messiah. Paul was one of them. So he becomes a religious terrorist. He's actually literally killing Christians, literally. And we see in, in Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to persecute the church. And Jesus appears to him and completely transforms this guy into the apostle of love and to become his mouthpiece to take the gospel, the good news, to the known ends of the world at this time. It's kind of interesting little tidbit, but at the end of the book in chapter 16, verse 22, there's a guy named Tertius. And he says, I, Tertius, who have written this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul dictated this letter to the Romans and he, he wrote it for him. Paul, we know, had problems with his eyesight. And sometimes he would say, hey, listen, I love you so much, I wrote with my own hand. And sometimes he had to have some help in that. This letter of Romans was written about 57, 58 AD. And he writes to the church at Rome. Now, it's interesting, like how did people hear the gospel in Rome? How was a church how did a church begin? Because Paul, we see in this letter, he's saying, I, I, I'm lo- longing to come be with you guys. I'm longing to come spend time with you. He had never been to Rome. How did that happen? Well, you go back into the book of Acts chapter 2, and on the day of Pentecost, it says there were visitors from all over the world. The, the Jewish people had been dispersed. And so they, many of them, instead of going back to Jerusalem or to Israel, they stayed in the cities and places that they were dispersed to. So it says people from Rome in Acts 2.10 came on the day of Pentecost to celebrate that Jewish uh, festival and that they heard Peter preach the gospel. And they, thousands of people were transformed by Jesus. And they took that good news back to Rome and they started a church. Amazing how, how God knew what he was doing in this. So Paul had not been to Rome yet as we go through Romans. Keep that in mind. Um, but Paul ended up in Rome. As you read the book of Acts, he ended up in Rome not going to preach the gospel or to visit the church, but as a prisoner, as a prisoner of Rome for preaching King Jesus, for preaching this other kingdom other than Rome and other than the emperor, you know, Nero Nero at the time. That's how proud Rome was. How dare you? We're talking about a spiritual kingdom that has nothing to do with physical land or anything like that, but they were going to snuff anything out that they could. We know that Paul was ultimately martyred. He was beheaded as a Roman prisoner. So I'm undertaking the task this morning to teach through two and a half chapters. So I'm going to do it, and we'll get you out of here on time, I promise. But I I felt like as I was praying about it, it's, it's important to have a groundwork laid for the rest of the messages in understanding the book of Romans. So in the first few chapters, Paul gives bad news. He starts out by greeting them, and he, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But then he gives some bad news. When you go to the doctor, when you go to the doctor, you are asking the doctor to judge your health, are you not? You want the doctor to judge your health. And that's what Paul is, is, is doing here. If you want to get healthy after the doctor gives you a diagnosis, 
you do what they say to do, or you put, in, put into practice, you listen to their diagnosis. This is what Jesus did all over the Gospels. He constantly diagnosed the human condition apart from having relationship with our Creator. He was always pointing that out. If you noticed in the Gospels, sinners and broken people, prostitutes, flocked to Jesus. And the Pharisees hated that because he called, they called them unclean and sinners and all that. Jesus was persecuted for being a friend of sinners and tax collectors, the most hated people. Jesus would always diagnose the condition for the broken as well as for the religious Pharisees who couldn't see him. They didn't understand he was the Messiah. And that's what Paul is doing in his first two chapters, the first two chapters of the the book of Romans. So what is the bad news that he talks about? Well, it's universal guilt, if you're taking notes. It's universal guilt. All of humanity is guilty of something. I want to talk about that a little bit. But as I talk about sin, if we talk about universal guilt, don't go down the road of just behavior and sins with an S on the end, because our behavior, our actions come from the problem of sin, not sins. They're just a byproduct of that. And what we're going to get in the good news is the antidote to the bad news of, of universal guilt. So what are we guilty of? What are we guilty of? We're guilty of determining for ourselves what is right and wrong and good and evil. Humanity is guilty of that. Proverbs 3, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Best definition I've ever heard of what the fear of the Lord is, is a fear, the fear of the Lord is a healthy respect for God's definition of right and wrong and good and evil. It's to say, yeah, he, he understands. He's God. So if he says something is right, it's right. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong. If he says it's good, it's good. If it's evil, it's evil. We let God lead in that. But the problem is, I haven't done that all my life, and, and neither have you. We're all guilty at times of determining for ourselves what is right and wrong. But no one's walked in the fear of the Lord. That's that universal guilt that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were told, hey, you can eat of all the trees that are here. But I reserve this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. Because if you do, you will die. And what happened? The serpent comes in and tempts Eve and Adam follows suit to to be wise in their own eyes, to determine for themselves what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. And they were tempted to to misunderstand God. They they were tempted to question God's character, question his word, and the fall entered into humanity, this universal guilt. Paul says this, I'm going to fast forward to his conclusion of universal guilt, and we'll go back and talk through that a little bit, then we'll get to the really good news. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And then he begins to quote some Psalms in Old Testament. He says, there is no righteous person, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. Here it is. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. That's not good news. That's bad news. Humanity has gone to Dr. Jesus, the great physician, and the diagnosis is, you're doing it wrong. You don't get it. You're doing it wrong. You're going in the wrong direction. And that's that. The bad news to start with is humanity is out of alignment with God because of our decisions to be wise in our own eyes. And it takes us down the wrong direction. I think I told you this a couple months ago. I was on Highway 58 um, going west towards Golden to, to go home. And I got on the, the off-ramp to get on the street that I needed to be on. And there was a lady who was turning a left, taking a left turn to get on Highway 58 to go east. And she got on the, our lane that's getting off the highway and started going. It says, wrong way, wrong way. And she starts driving down uh, the, the off-ramp there. And I was like, oh my gosh. She's going to be going the wrong way on a highway where people are driving 50, 60 miles an hour. Well, thank God, I was looking in the rearview mirror. She stopped, and she turned and went in the right direction. I was like, oh, thank you. That's what ultimately we're going to be talking a lot about is when we're going in the wrong direction in our minds and our attitudes or literally repentance is turning and going into the right direction. That's ultimately what God wants us to do. Repentance is a really good word. So what is, the, what is I got ahead of myself here. Um, we're going to circle back now, and we're going to go back to chapter 1 and 2, and how Paul got to this climax of, of the, the human condition, that diagnosis. We're going to talk about three wrong approaches to relating to God. The bad news is that humanity has been trying to approach God the wrong way, to approach life the wrong way, or to avoid God altogether. We're all guilty of that to some, to some degree, and I, I can see myself in all three of these, and I, I imagine you will too. The first wrong approach is what we're going to call hedonism. A hedonist is a person who lives for pleasure. They live for self. We see that in, in uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32. He talks about that. It's the old 60s mantra of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That was like, woohoo, I'm going to do what I want to do kind of thing. The hedonist says, I'll do what I want to do. That's, that's kind of a hedonist mantra. I know for myself, I was that. When I was in high school, I 
wanted to follow Jesus, but I was so tempted to live for myself that I went down the wrong road for several years. And thank God in his grace, when I was going the wrong way, he turned me around to go in his, his way. But we can all relate to that. Play hard, party hard, right? That's, that's the hedonist. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I think we get the word wrath really wrong. We tend to think of God's wrath as it's his angry reaction to sin and sinners. Is there that to some degree in the Old Testament? Yeah, but I think the wrath of God is more passive than it is active. And it's, it's, it's passive in the sense that if we choose to continually live in a life in disalignment to God's way, and we determine for ourselves what's right and wrong and good and evil, there's going to be consequences. I believe that's definitely part of of the wrath of God is, if, you know, he just allows that to happen. I experienced, I think I've experienced that in my life. Have you experienced bad consequences for bad decisions that you've made? So in a sense, that's the judgment of God. That's his wrath saying, okay, you be the boss of your life and tell me how that turns out. And it, it doesn't turn out so good. But I believe God's wrath, and this is going to be new to some of you, but God's wrath is, is in its active sense is his fatherly no to our sin and destruction. It's his no. Not on my watch am I going to allow you to destroy your life. It's his, his love, his fatherliness. Who, as a parent, if you had a kid that was going to go run out into the street with fast cars, would not snatch their kid away from the potential destruction or from a fire or any kind of hurting themselves? I heard a, a teacher, a Bible teacher, say that the incarnation, which the incarnation is, is Jesus, God, the Son, becoming human, just like us. That's the incarnation, what we celebrate every Christmas. It's God became one of us. And he says that the incarnation is the wrath of God in the sense that Jesus came to say, you know what, you guys, humanity's been screwing things up and destroying one another. And he came to show us what a real human life looks like when it's lived in 100% submission to the Father. And he came to give his life as a sacrifice for sin and to defeat the evil one and to defeat death. He says, um, actually, if you've never read anything by Athanasius, he's a church father. He has a short little book called On the Incarnation. You can read it for free um, on the Google. If you go out there, you, you'll find it. But he, in his little book on the incarnation, Athanasius, he said, what was a good God to do watching his creation perishing into nothingness? His active no was the incarnation, to come and undo the fallen work of Adam. That's what we're singing about. This isn't about you and I doing stuff for God. It's about what he's done for us, 
That's what our Christian life is about. Not trying harder, but resting in our union with God. Resting in our union with Jesus. The hedonist, Paul says, suppresses the truth. Exchanges the truth for a lie. Actually going into idolatry and worshiping the creation versus the creator. Giving them over to their lusts and their impurities, he talks about. And the hedonist, Paul says, is guilty by conscience that they know ultimately what they're doing is wrong. Didn't we all know that when we were screwing up? Like there was something in here that says that's not right. It's because we were created to love God and love our neighbor. And when we're not walking in love, then there's our conscience is, is bothered. But they're also guilty by creation. That all you got to do is look around. Those of you that are trying to avoid God and think it's live life to the fullest now and, and die, is you can look at creation and know there is a God that wants to know you. Second wrong approach is moralism. After Paul talks about the hedonist, he talks about moralism as a wrong approach. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things as these, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You who are judging the hedonist, you are judging those whose behavior is terrible, etc. He says, who do you think you are? You think you're right with God because of morals. The person, often we're guilty of this, right? We be, we're, 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 that little moralist in, in each one of us sometimes says, I wish my husband was here to hear this message. Am I right? Or I wish so-and-so was here, could hear this. Be careful with that. That's, that's judgment. And, and I, I get it. We, we want people to to walk in the truth, but judgment's never going to get somebody to walk in the truth or condemnation. A moralist, their, their mantra is, I'm not like them. I'm not, I, when I compare myself to these people's behavior or that, man, okay, I feel good about myself. I must be okay with God. We feel superior and it makes us feel like we're right with God because I'm not like so-and-so. The third wrong approach Paul brings up in chapter 2 is what we would call legalism. Legalism. Legalism is trying to relate to God by, I follow the rules. I follow the law. I follow the rules. And that's how somebody feels like they're, they're, they're close to God. Now, when you hear the word law, you're going to hear it a lot as you read through, you're going to read it a lot as you read through Romans. And the law... There's three aspects to the word law in Scripture. There's the law of Moses, which is in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and all, all of that. There's that, that law of, of Moses. And part of the law of Moses, especially the Ten Commandments, is what we would call the moral law. Because the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are about loving God. The second six are about loving your neighbor. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. That's all... A failure to love your neighbor. So you can, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments when he said, love God with all you have, love your neighbor as yourself. But then there's the ceremonial aspect to the law, 
When you read through Exodus and Leviticus and all the things that separated the Jewish people outwardly, the dietary laws, the, 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 the worship, the uh, clothes, all of these things, you know, circumcision were all outward things that separated the Jews. Then there's civil law, you know, s- speed limits, uh, taxes, all these kinds of things. And, and a lot of our Western civil law comes from the law of Moses, comes from, from that. So when you think of that, think of those three things. Which one is Paul talking about? What type of law? Um, when our oldest Chase, she's 26 now, and gave us baby Jolene, who we had four days with. It was amazing this past week. Um, when she was about three, maybe four tops, we were at, I pulled up to a, a, a stop sign, and there was a train going. There was a red light and a train. And she's in the back seat, and I had some gum in my mouth, and I threw it out the window. And I look in the rearview mirror, and she's crying terribly, like not making noise, but tears are flowing down her face. I go, sweetheart, what's the matter? And she goes, you're going to jail. You threw your gum out the window. And I was like, oh, do as I say, not as I do kind of deal, right? <laughs> like, when it comes to that, because we had told her about littering, in the, you know, and so she, must, she took that to heart that I was going to jail. But the legalist says, I follow the rules. And the problem that happens in this is when you are trying to rule follow or do's and don'ts to be right with God, like where does that end? How do you know whether you've done enough or avoided the right things? God wants us off that wrong approach too. We're legalistic to God when I try to be right with God by following the rules, by the do's and don'ts and thou shalts, right? It's not that we shouldn't pursue that, but it's not the avenue, understanding the heart behind commandments is more important to, to why would God tell me to do something or not to do it? It's for my good. It's because he's a loving God. He's a loving father. It's not like he's trying to make our lives be a drag or something. He wants us to have the full life. We're legalistic towards one another as believers when we demand and command behavior or this or that that the Bible's silent on or maybe is gray on. That's when we can be legalistic. We're adding to, we're adding gray areas to black and white areas. When you think of the law, I heard this this week, I thought this was brilliant. When you think of the, the what was the purpose of the law of Moses? Because Paul says over and over, the law is good. It is good. All of the law of Moses, it's good and and, and has a purpose. And somebody explained it this way that I, I heard on a podcast that when we launch a spacecraft to go into outer space, you have to have these rockets that get it beyond our, the surface of the, or get it out into orbit beyond the earth's atmosphere. Those rockets are important and they serve a huge purpose to get the craft into space. But once the craft is into space, then those rockets are dropped. They have served their purpose. The law had a purpose to get us to Jesus. And to get us to Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms that he said over and over 
were about him, that led to him. Paul says in Romans 10 that he is the end of the law. He is the end of the law. Not that the law is bad or we shouldn't read the Old Testament, but we need to see it through the lens of Jesus. We need to see it through the lens of, of the fulfillment that Jesus did for us. It makes me sad when I see believers trying to live in the Old Testament through the law, the letter of the law, rather than, as in the New Testament, live in the Spirit. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us, and He's written His law upon our hearts, the law of love. So what's the good news? That's the bad news, Paul says. The, the word uh, gospel means good news, literally means the word gospel and good news are the exact same thing. Here's the gospel. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So in your gospel presentation to family and friends who aren't believers, start there. I got good news for you. Jesus did something for you that you could never do for yourself. Well, what'd he do? Well, he defeated our three main enemies. He defeated sin by nailing it to the cross. Our guilt was nailed to the cross. Our shame was nailed to the cross. And he defeated death by his resurrection. When he rose from the dead, Paul says he abolished death. We don't have to fear death. Physical death just becomes a doorway into his presence. And he defeated the evil one. He stripped the authority of, of the unseen realm that's fallen in darkness. He has all authority. And when you're walking in Jesus, with Jesus, you're walking in the authority of the one who holds all authority over the universe. After Paul gave all that bad news, he gives good news. He says, for no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God, in his forbearance, had passed over the sins previously committed. What does that mean that he displayed him at his death as the mercy seat? In some of your translations, it's the word propitiation. It's If you go back to the tabernacle and the temple, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what's called the mercy seat. And the priest would take the blood of the lamb and put it on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people and to help their conscience uh, be relieved of their, their guilt. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus spiritually and literally went into heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, and applied his own blood to the mercy seat. That's what that means. That's good news. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's a simple definition of the gospel. 
The good news has nothing to do with us, what we do and don't do. The good news is all about what he did. So what happens to us now that we hear the good news is what do I do with this good news? What should I do with the good news? Back in the the Civil War, when the Civil War ended and Abraham Lincoln uh, declared the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the end of slavery, slavery was outlawed in America. And to emancipate means to free from slavery and bondage. That's what it means to emancipate somebody. Well, there, there was a lot of, of the people who were raised in slavery who are now emancipated and free that continue just living as a slave. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of us do in our lives is we have been emancipated by the gospel, by the person and work of Jesus, and yet we still live like slaves. We still live in, in bondage. And the only way to get free from that is to understand what Jesus has done. Understand how good God is and how much the Father loves you and that He's given you everything you need for life and godliness to be an overcomer in a world filled with temptation and and things that are trying to lead us to destruction. We can say no to. We can say no to it because of grace. We can say no to it because of, of His power. So what's the right approach to relating to God? It's faith and repentance. It's a change of our minds and a literal change of our direction. Like that lady who was going the wrong way, she turned around and went in the right direction. And so in our lives, we all have stuff that we're tempted with. The list could go on and on. Let's stop. We can say no. To sin, we can say no to things that are destructive, and we can walk in the, the way of Jesus to be healthy, to change our, our minds. To, you start by, uh, I admit my guilt, and then I trust the remedy to my guilt. I admit I'm in that humanity, I'm in that long line of sinners, universally guilty of, of either avoiding God or trying to approach God the wrong way. So I say, It's me, Lord. And he says, you're free, follow me. You're free, follow me. Give up other approaches and follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Romans uses the word justification over and over. And we tend to make it just this legal transaction. And it's so much more than that. Um, Anybody ever use an actual typewriter? You guys are old. Just kidding because I did too. Or even on a computer, on a Word document, you have to justify your typing, right? There's a little setting that you hit. And what does it mean to justify your document? You're aligning it properly. So think of justification as being in proper alignment with God. That's ultimately what it means to be justified. And he says, he's justified us freely by his grace. So now my participation in this, your participation is to believe that and walk it out. Walk it out in the newness of who you are in Christ. One of the first things Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark after his baptism, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. That's all the Apostle Paul is saying here. Change your mind. Change your direction about how you relate to God. The Pharisees and the religious people, they didn't know how to repent because they were so stuck and they thought they had the, the way to walk with God. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have it, right? These broken people are entering the kingdom while you're staying outside because you want to stay stuck in your religion, in your legalism, in your moralism, or, or, or a hedonist. So the word in Greek for repent is metanoia, and it means to change your thinking. Change your thinking. Repentance is a way of life. I posted an, an article on uh, our Seven Miles Discipleship page from Tim Keller. It's a great article on how to live a lifestyle of repentance. Because we often think repentance is a one-time deal. But no, it's a daily. Lord, my thinking was terrible yesterday. Help me to think right today. Lord, my attitude, my, my emotions, help it align me to Jesus. Help me to walk in my alignment to Jesus, better said. It's that constantly realigning ourselves to the way of Jesus. If your car ever gets out of alignment and it, you know, boom, you hit a curb and your car wants to just keep going left and you're fighting the steering wheel for the car to go in the right direction, you need to get a realignment. That's a daily thing. You relate to what I'm saying here? Like that, that happens. We get tempted. We get angry. We get, we get double crossed. Something happens and we're just, ah, I need to go, go to, go to the Dr. Jesus and let him realign, realign us, realign our hearts. I want to finish this way. If you're willing this morning to say, Lord, I want to moment by moment, day by day, align my life to you, to walk in what you've already done for me. If you're saying that this morning, would you stand with me? Our church exists to make disciples who make disciples. And each one of you are going to leave here today and go back out into the workplace tomorrow or uh, your, your neighborhoods, your schools. And there's a lot of competition for your allegiance. You figure that out, right? There's a lot of, lot of competing voices for your, your allegiance. And when we say, Lord, I want to be aligned with you, I first acknowledge your allegiance to me. That's more important than my allegiance to him. But then it's, it's Lord, help my will to be aligned with your will. That's that daily struggle. That's the daily struggle that each one of us find ourselves in. If for, for some reason today you've never put your faith in Jesus, today's the day, whether you're in person or watching online, and to put your faith in Jesus is to agree with him that he is who he says he is, that he is the savior of the world and he's the Lord of all. And you say, I agree. Now I'm going to follow you. And then we live our life putting into practice what he says to do. He gets to call the shots. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We learn how to live from him. So Lord, I thank you 
that you have realigned us to the Father. The Father wasn't angry with us, ready to pounce on us, but the Father loved us so much that that He gave you His one and only Son that we wouldn't perish, but that we would have eternal life. Help us to have a, a good understanding of the heart of your Father, Lord Jesus. Your heart for us as your brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, you dwell richly in us. Help us to recognize that we are your temple and that you are with us 24-7. Help us to overcome the things that are trying to trip us up in life, not in our willpower, but by real power that comes from the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this church family. Bless them this morning with an awareness of your peace, an awareness of your joy. Father, your singing love over each one of us and that you love us. You're a good, good God, a good Father. Lord, those that are struggling physically today with ailments and sickness, hurts, God, I pray for physical healing to be released into their bodies. God, those that are struggling emotionally, would you heal their emotions and help their emotions to align with what we know is truth? And God, relationships that are struggling today, whether it's marriage, family, friendships, on the job, let us be like Jesus. Help us to forgive Help us to love our enemies. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.